This is episode 43 of the Get In My Garden podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Moskowitz, and today we have a very special guest. He is a speaker, writer, entrepreneur, citizen scientist, mycologist, and so much more. William Padilla Brown. He is a contributing editor for Fungi Magazine, and today we discuss his work with algae and the five algae species that are most promising for cultivation and economic feasibility. William talks about algae and fungi as the premier organisms for ecosystem restoration and their relationship to each other. Current algae research for algal remediation potential in wastewater and usage in various agricultural systems. Then we talk about how many people are now creating new micro-industries, self-educating and contributing to a much brighter future that includes natural farming methods paired with creative use of technology. Finally, we talk about William's various projects and businesses and some details about DNA sequencing research he is involved in to identify new mushroom species and species-specific unique compounds with medical discovery potential. Subscribe and leave positive reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen from, and follow my adventures on Instagram at GetInMyGarden, where I am actively posting content related to the podcast episodes. Visit GetInMyGarden.com and join the email list I've just started. Over the next few months, I will be offering amazing extra content and supplemental materials there, and I promise it'll be worth it for you. I do a lot of different talks all around the country um, whenever I do speak. I have done the Fungal Fortune talk in a couple different states and cities around the country so far. Well, you got my attention. First, I, I noticed you online, I don't know, many months ago, I think. You had some videos about what you were working on with algae, and then you mentioned it very briefly in your presentation. Yeah, I've been working with algae since 2015, working with growing different varieties, different species. Mostly the top five that we believe to be the most beneficial species of algae to be working with, easiest to get started working with. So we're talking about spirulina, that's the Arthrospira genus, chlorella vulgaris, Hematococcus pluvalis, Nanochloropsis gaditana. Those are the main species that I've worked with and some that show the most potential for individuals getting into this as a business. So we see a lot of biotech companies working with these species, a lot of supplement companies working with these species. Currently, I'm just cultivating spirulina in hopes to be the first to bring it to market in central Pennsylvania as a fresh product. Oh, wow. So what would that look like? I do, first of all, love the fact that you're doing all these things, but you are focusing on the business side of it. That's so great. There's a lot of people that go into these things and they don't really think about that so yeah i mean i think it's important i do want to do a lot of research and i do want to play around with all these different algae strains but in order for that to make sense it has to be economically feasible so i have to be able to afford to buy the cultures i have to be able to afford to do the experiments so on and so forth and what would your product look like as far as bringing a fresh one to market is that something you'd sell at the farmer's market and would it be in a liquid form um i'd be selling it in a fresh pressed form so I'd harvest it from the culture tanks and then I'd press all the water from it. So it kind of turns into this like goo, soft cheese, tofu type consistency. That's so wild. That's definitely something I've never seen out there. That's cool. But as far as like you you said something, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but the oldest single-celled organism is algae and then fungi. I know what you're referring to. Yeah. For years, I've been telling people that algae and fungi are the alpha and omega of biology, algae being the first photosynthesizing organism, and I'm talking cyanobacteria, which is classified as algae at this point. And uh, fungi being the first like large scale decomposer. Prior to both fungi and algae, there was bacteria and things of that nature processing inorganic compounds. But 
algae and fungi just came up as the premier organisms for ecosystem creation and ecosystem restoration. So with every single major mass extinction, algae and fungi coming together and recreating these ecosystems, they've survived every single mass extinction and they're some of the only organisms that we've seen growing in space. So we have algae and fungi growing together as lichens. Mm. And, and algae and fungi growing individually outside of the space station and on asteroids and things like that that we see flying through space. But we've seen Earth-originated algae and fungi growing in space in orbit on materials. So I think that's incredible and that says a lot. I mean, I think any pioneer species or any truly adapted, like a species that's going to survive is going to be space-faring species. And we are dealing with species that can exist in space without suits, without earth-like environments so that's something that's truly incredible no kidding wow and probably going to be critical if we're going to be taking ourselves to other planets 100 percent. i mean if we think that we can just do that on our own we're extremely mistaken we sh- we have to be working with algae fungi bacteria insects you know if we're going to create ecosystems that are capable of providing us with what we need we need to be um, working with all of these organisms and and working with the resi- the most resilient species and these groups. And now, can you speak a little bit to the as far as the remediation side of things? Because I know for sure, and also fuel, because a lot of people talk about like micro-remediation right now, but I also know that algae remediates things. Do you know anything about that? Yes. Um, I've had a fair amount of conversations with my friend Matthew Huber. He runs algae research uh, and supply out of Carlsbad, California. Mm-hmm. And he's actually done some algal remediation projects. So we've discussed utilizing algae for uh, remediation of human wastes. So we're talking like wastewater treatment facilities. This water is just loaded with nutrients. And oftentimes we are seeing individual boroughs, municipalities, townships, cities that are discreetly putting this human waste effluent into local bodies of water under the radar. Mm-hmm. And all of these nutrients that are washing away from agricultural land in combination with that are causing toxic algal blooms. So when we think about these toxic algal blooms, all they're really doing is taking care of the nutrients that have been added into the water. They're eating the nutrients that have been added into the water, but we're dealing with species that aren't so beneficial, species that are overcrowding the water and causing fish to suffocate. And we're dealing with species that make it unpleasurable for us to get in the water and could potentially make us sick. So why not work with more beneficial species before these nutrients end up getting into the into these water sources? I mean, and then on top of that, we also have cities with these combined sewage overflows. So anytime that it starts to rain, uh, rain too much, the human waste in the sewer gets combined with the rainwater and then that goes into local bodies of water. So there has to be points of collection or retention for things like the combined sewage overflow and for the agricultural runoff. For the actual wastewater treatment facilities, um, we could be installing large-scale or medium-sized scale algae runway ponds I and mean, things of this nature to remediate some of the uh, nutrients that are in the, the wastewater and then utilize that biomass that was created from this wastewater as organic nutrient amendment for agricultural systems and things of this nature. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, like sewage without being 
treated with algae could still in some way go into agricultural fertilizer, but algae would speed that all up, wouldn't it? Um, algae would algae would speed that up. It would has the potential to remove some of these unwanted nutrients. And then it also just seems a little bit more clean, I guess. I don't know the word that I'm looking for, but... Yeah, and we also have more carbon capture. We have these algae, this algae that is capturing atmospheric CO2 in the process of cleaning out this wastewater. And one of the things that I just wanted to add is that algae being one of algae being the fastest growing agricultural crop and a crop that uses the least amount of water, um, we could see a lot of clean water returned into our systems. And then we see such a rapid rate of this biomass accumulation. So finishing on the idea I had before, a lot of people would be kind of turned off if they knew that people were putting human waste in the agricultural systems as fertilizers versus algae biomass. Uh-huh. that was grown on human waste. I mean, I don't know, just taking it another step away from actually putting human waste in. Because I mean, like, I don't even know if that's allowed right now. It's Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, so that would definitely, at least for PR, that would help a lot. Yeah, I mean, and then look, if we do figure out some some method of retention for agricultural runoff so that we're not getting these toxic algal blooms, that algae that's grown on that runoff could potentially be utilized for cattle feed which I think that there's a big promising future as far as algae and seaweed goes for cattle feed. Um, There's been a lot of research done that shows cattle that have been fed seaweed and algae-based products have a significant reduction of methane production, which I mean, there's a lot of debate going around right now because it seems silly when people say that cow farts are like contributing so much to global warming. Uh Um, People don't want to believe it, especially people that are enjoying their Five Guys burgers and, you know, eating their ribs and all these kinds of things don't want to believe it. And it seems silly when people say cow farts. I mean, like they're like, oh, cow farts are ruining the environment. Well, it it is a real thing. Cattle produce a lot of methane and methane is more serious of of a greenhouse gas than CO2 is. So with that research, with the algae and the seaweed uh, being fed to the cattle, I think that there is a lot of potential for producing algae and and farming seaweed, uh, which is also algae for cattle consumption to reduce methane. So I think there is a bright future for that moving forward. That's really smart. And also from a uh, non-environmental standpoint, even the probably feeding them algae, which is super high in protein and much closer to grass, which they're naturally supposed to be eating and they're not eating, it's probably much healthier for them. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel bad for the cattle on on the planet right now. It's horrible. They're eating things that they're not supposed to eat at all. There are so many animals that just like slave their lives away to produce these products that make our lives comfortable, like all of our milks and our yogurts and all of the meats and things that we eat. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I eat meat and I use animal products, but like living in Pennsylvania, it's way easier to get access to animal products that I know are ethically raised. For sure. Well, yeah. And in New Mexico, it's definitely, there's a ranching culture and I grew up in Seattle and I, I spent my time as a vegan and all that, but now I'm a complete mm-hmm. like meat eater. And I actually think that grazing animals have a part in the, in everything. But I, I mean, I oh, do yeah. think yeah. about that and particularly how horrible the conventional stuff is it's just so so unethical it's yeah and it's so far off from what is natural i mean like i i do have this debate a lot of times with people that say like everything that humans are doing is so unnatural and so on and so forth when i believe that inherently what we're doing is natural being an organism that came from nature i mean our brains were evolved from nature all of our technology comes from nature 
I think that's a cool way to think of it. I I agree with that. Yeah. And I'm Um, a futurist for sure. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like I'm a futurist. I believe that there is a positive future. I believe that we're working towards a positive future as in traveling for the past four years and seeing so many people doing so many good things uh, gives me a lot of hope for a more positive future. We are creating a new story, especially in North America, the way that we are keeping our um, grazing animals is kind of far off from what, what was natural. So, I mean, like, uh, I'm sure you've heard the stories of the Europeans killing off the bison, yes. uh, which was the, the prime, premier grazing animal in North America mm-hmm. to, to destroy the uh, native food stock. But people, I, I see a lot of these things where like um, the more counterculture hippie type uh, millennials are like, turn North America into a forest again and da 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 but North America was never a giant forest. It right. Was, yeah, it was mostly plain lands that were grazed by bison. And that's such a more efficient way of carbon storage. Like Exactly. Perennial grasses. like The roots go down 20 feet. And then the bison just come through and cycle that and cycle that and cycle that. It take, Trees can't capture carbon in the, in the efficacy that grazing animals on plain lands do. So, I mean, like, and I could only people could imagine the quality of the meat that those bison were producing, the quality of the milk that those bison were producing. Like it's probably like alien to us and what we, what we have available to us now. That's gotta be true. Well, as far as, so I, what I run into a lot of the time when I talk with people, I try not to take a political stance or too much of a strong ecological stance because everybody who listens already knows a lot of that. But as far as Um, The one thing that I try to focus on is the positive of what is, you know, like the technologies and things, because a lot of the environmental movement, I feel, has they're very fatalistic. Mm -hmm. And it's our generation that will have to save the day. And I mean, we have no options besides using technology. And that's a good thing, in my opinion. And I do view that as an extension of nature because we're the intelligent beings of nature. Yeah, I think of. I think of humans as like the ultimate scientific tool, the ultimate natural scientific tool. And I believe that inherently we create tools. I mean, that's one of the things that, that makes us human. And I believe that these tools have both positive and negative potentials. I mean, just like anything, we live in this dualistic reality. Anything could be positive or negative. And mm-hmm. I believe so many people are just focused on the negative of technology. I mean, like there's so many people that have this incredible tool in their hand every day, the cell phone that has access to like all of this information and what do they do with it? They just look at Instagram and YouTube and Facebook and consume. Like we, so many people, I mean, I've lived in like many different countries growing up. Like I've lived in England, I've lived in Mexico, I've lived in in, uh, Asia and Taiwan. And in all of these countries, people are programmed as consumers. People consume culture, people consume products, consume all of these things. And there's so many other ways that we can be utilizing these things. Like, I love creators. Like I love people that create art. I love people that create ecosystems, people that create whatever it is that they're interested in. And I personally have used the technology to my benefit, both as a consumer and as a creator. I mean, like I tell people I graduated from YouTube university. Like I didn't get the opportunity to go to college. I dropped out of high school and I utilized the internet for my benefit. I, I mean, we have access to like literally so many historical records, so much collegiate research and I mean, I took advantage of that and taught myself how to do pretty much everything that I do off of the internet and then 
flip it to the to the side of being a creator, creating content, creating systems. I think uh, it's brilliant. Art. It's awesome. You're you're such an early adopter, really, because it was only a few years ago that people still seem to buy into the idea that you must go to school. But now even the establishment of corporations and things like that, they're even saying, we don't care if you went to school because it's about what you know. Mm-hmm. And then all the knowledge is out there. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is about comfort. I mean, especially in North America and in the United States, a lot of it is about comfort. Like I'm going to go to school so I can have the comfort of like having a job. Doing what I do, it is uncomfortable sometimes. I I don't have that security of getting the same paycheck every two weeks and all these kinds of things. Like I'm, I'm just out here like doing the work that I know that needs to be done. I find my comfort. I mean, because everybody needs that. I find my comfort in knowing that what I'm doing is, is ethical. I know that what I'm doing is not detrimental to the environment that I live in. It's not detrimental to the community that I live in. It's actually the opposite. Like we're working on creating these ecologically regenerative, sustainable micro industries, these small businesses that in the act of doing business are beneficial to both their community and the ecosystem that they exist in. So that is so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I learned from Scott Kellogg and Stacey Pettigrew at the Radix Center in Albany, New York. Oh, cool. Probably back in 2014, 2015. Um, But that's something that I've been pushing for since then. Well, I, I love what you're doing and it's obviously paying off. I mean, what you're doing is building every single year and it's also something that is so much more interesting than anything that you could do in like the normal economy. Mm-hmm. And there are certain people who want to learn everything and I think that you and a lot of the listeners are that type of person, myself included. So I, I'm, I love it. It's awesome. <laughs> well, Thanks. can you talk a little bit about the scope of what you, I know you've got lots of different projects and you are selling your products and from the photos that I saw, you got some great operations going on and uh, you're a teacher and a speaker, but you do also sell things. I think people should know about your products and why you're selling what you're selling and how great they right are. Right on. Well, um, I have my own website, mycoshop.net, where I sell mushroom cultures. And over the next couple of weeks, um, I'll be adding a lot more gourmet medicinal mushroom cultures. I, I sell a lot of cordyceps militaris. Being the first person that published any English literature on cordyceps cultivation, I've had a lot of like eyes on me as far as cordyceps go. So I've been selling cordyceps militaris cultures on there for people to grow. And then you can get my ebook and, and learn a little bit. I'm, I am hoping to raise money to uh, publish another ebook with updated research on cultivation. I also sell collaborative products on there. So we grow a lot of cordyceps mushrooms. We grow a lot of other mushrooms. Um, and being that the market isn't completely educated on how to utilize them just yet, uh, we do a lot of collaborative products with other individuals, creating more familiar products. Um, we do a lot of work with Cognitive Function, which you can find our product in collaboration with them at cognitivefunction.net. Oh, cool. Um, and we do a lot of focus on food as medicine. So again, just creating more familiar products, but incorporating the mushrooms. Uh, a lot of these mushroom products, you'll never see the mushrooms. We've got a lot of powders. we got a lot of tinctures. And people have this disconnect and they don't actually get to see what it is that they're consuming. So we make sure that we actually put the mushroom in the product for people to feel, for people to taste um, and get get introduced with. So that's pretty much, I mean, as far as the, the products that we go, unless you live in central Pennsylvania, where we do a lot of farmers market and sell fresh produce and fresh mushrooms. Gotcha. Uh, but yeah. Well, and then as far as that goes, I know that, well, I don't know for sure about this, but You've mentioned that you'll go out and you are foraging for different mushrooms. And then when you find them, you might take a culture from that. And does that mean that what you're producing in your lab is going to be slightly different than what people will find elsewhere? 
Yeah. So, um, oh, I mean, there's a lot of commercial strains of mushrooms out there coming from Asia, coming from Europe, and some from the United States. I do focus a lot on native mushroom strains. So I'll forage around the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. Um, I'll find all these gourmet and medicinal mushrooms, and I'll bring them back to the lab, clone them, and then run them out in the farm. So we do produce a lot of native mushroom strains here at the farm. That's been something that's been a big part of my business since I started back in 2015. And then as far as if you collect something, how similar will it be? Like if, if it looks the same as something you find in a different part of the country, could it still be very different? Oh, yeah. And that's why we're doing a lot of work with like DNA sequencing. Um, I've had the opportunity to come in contact with the micro mycoflora project a couple times. Mm-hmm. And then some of my friends, a couple of my friends around the country are like, uh, very savvy as far as molecular biology and extracting DNA from fungi goes. So I would just like to shout out Alan Rockefeller and Craig Trester. But we can send in our samples of these mushrooms and like almost every single time there's slight differences. I mean, we're not, if you find an oyster mushroom on the West Coast and an oyster mushroom on the East Coast, they're definitely different. So there's been a lot of work with DNA sequencing and then changing the, the Latin binomials for these mushrooms because they're they are different and we're just so used to like macroscopically identifying mushrooms so now we're getting to molecular identification that is so cool and then as far as the potential for discovery and like medical discovery it's like unlimited practically oh yeah i mean there's so many kids that are in university that have access to all these tools that we could be utilizing to discover unique uh species specific unique compounds and uh compounds that we already know to be beneficial medicinally um, and all these different mushrooms. So there's so much room and so much space for discovery here as far as like medicinals go, as far as textiles go, I mean, so on and so forth. There's so much potential for all these organisms. I personally want to uh, raise funds enough to equip my own laboratory with things like uh, high-performance liquid and gas chromatography Mm-hmm. Um, we already have equipped the lab with molecular biology equipment, like polymerase chain reaction machine and gel electrophoresis and things of that nature. But um, I do want to be able to raise money for more equipment because nobody's going to be as dedicated or as passionate about some of these projects as I am. And I want to be able to bring this to the world in a way that's affordable. I mean, a lot of times when you want to get things researched, when you want to get things analyzed, you're going to be coming out of pocket unless you're getting grants and things like that to do the research. So I just want to have all these things accessible to me so that I can do it at a, in a cost-effective way and get this research out there to the world. Well, that's amazing. I'm sure that's going to happen for you. Everybody who hears you talk is probably really interested and wants to help get you there. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Mycofest.net. Um, you can go check that out. Uh, Mycosymbiotics Mushroom and Arts Festival. Fifth annual is coming up August 2nd through the 4th. And we have a lot of fun there. We have over 17 speakers right now. We have authors um, in the fields of mycology and permaculture. Uh, we're going to be working with mushroom paper, food justice, cultivation, mushroom art. And uh, there's just going to be a lot of people, a lot of fun. Uh, some of our sponsors include Four Sigmatic and um, Mambucha. We have Lancaster Farm Fresh as our premier produce uh, sponsor. Phillips Mushrooms is our premier fresh mushroom sponsor. And yeah, we're just going to have lots and lots of fun. There's going to be all sorts of vendors there, um, all sorts of education. We typically find over 250 species of wild mushrooms over the weekend. Okay. Uh, past four years, we've, uh, we've actually found three species that haven't been identified by science. So there's just a lot of fun. I mean, uh, so yeah, you can go check out the tickets at mycofest.net and the ticket prices include camping and breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the weekend. So 
uh, a lot of value there. That's in your northeast area, right? That's in the in Pennsylvania. In uh, central Pennsylvania and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Camp Riley. Uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. All right. Well, thank you so much, William. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Talk to you again, I hope. Yeah, for sure. And good luck with all your projects. Uh, Thank you. Good luck with the podcast. Take care. Yep, you as well. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Subscribe and leave positive reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen from. And follow my adventures on Instagram at GetInMyGarden, where I am actively posting content related to the podcast episodes. Visit GetInMyGarden.com and join the email list I've just started. Over the next few months, I'll be offering amazing extra content and supplemental podcast materials. A quick shout out to listener Kev in Melbourne, Australia, who just wrote in about his success with Bokashi composting. And thanks to everyone else who has shared ideas and feedback and listened as the show has evolved. I'm so grateful to you all. Upcoming episodes will include more about herbal foraging, specialized beehives, edible landscaping, and so much more. Bye.